Chapter 8 of George Boring, A Tale of Cateridris. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Conover, Wyndham, Maine. George Boring, A Tale of Cateridris by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. Chapter 8. The Adair was making as much noise as ever, for the summer had been a wet one, and of course all the people of Abir Adair had their ears wide open. I showed Bob the bridge in the place of my vision, but did not explain its meaning, lest my love for him should seem fiduciary. And the next morning, at his most urgent request, we started the foot for that dark, sad valley. It was a long walk, and I did not find that twenty years had shortened it. Here we are, at last, I said, and the place looks the same as ever. There is the grand old Panicata, with the white cloud rolling as usual. To the left and right are the two other summits. The arms of the chair of Idris, and over the shoulder of that crag you can catch a glassy light in the air. That is, the reflection of Tal Elin. Why, yes, he answered impatiently. I know all that from your picture, uncle but show me the place where my father died. It lies immediately under our feet. You see that gray stone down there in the hollow, a few yards from the river brink? There he sat. As I have often told you, twenty years ago this day, there he was taking his food when someone, well, well, God knows, but we never shall. My boy, I am stiff in the knees. Go on. He went on alone, as I wished him to do, with exactly his father's step and glance, figure, face, and stature. Even his dress was the silver gray which his father had been so fond of, and which the kind young fellow chose to please his widowed mother. I could almost believe, as a cloudy mantle stole in long folds over the highland, producing the lights and shades and gloom of that mysterious day, that the twenty years were all a dream that here was poor George Boring going to his murder and his watery grave. My nerves are good and strong, I trow, and that much must have long been evident. But he did not know what young Bob's might be, and therefore I left him to himself. No man should be watched as he stands at the grave of his wife or mother. Neither should a young fellow who sits on the spot where his father was murdered Therefore, as soon as our Bob had descended in, into the gray stone pit in which his dear father must have breathed his last, I took good care to be out of sight. After observing that he sat down exactly as his father must have sat, except that his attitude, of course, was sad, and his face pale and reproachful. Then, leaving the poor young fellow to his thoughts, I also sat down to collect myself. But before I had time to do more than wonder at the mysterious ways of the world, or of providence in guiding it, at the manner in which great wrong lies hidden, and great woe falls unrecompensed, at the dark uncertain laws which cover, like an indiscriminate mountain cloud, the good and the bad, the kind and the cruel, the murdered and the murderer, a loud shriek rang through the rocky ravine and up the dark folds of the mountain, I started with terror and rushed forward, I heard myself called, and saw young Bowring leap up and stand erect and firm, although with a gesture of horror. 
At his feet lay the body of a man struck dead, flung on its back, with great hands spread on the eyes and white hair over them. No need to ask what it meant. At last the justice of God was manifest. The murderer lay, a rigid corpse, before the son of the murdered. Did you strike him? I asked. Is it likely, said the youth, that I would strike an aged man like that? I assure you I never had such a fright in my life. This poor old fellow came on me quite suddenly from behind a rock. When all my mind was full of my father, and his eyes met mine, and down he fell, as if I had shot him through the heart. You have done no less, I answered, and then I stooped over the corpse as I had stooped over the corpse of its victim, and the whole of my strength was required to draw the great knotted hands from the eyes, upon which they were cramped with a spasm not yet relaxed. It is Hopkin upon Howell, I cried, as the great eyes, glaring with the horror of death, stood forth. Black Hopkin once, white Hopkin now. Robert Boring, you have slain the man who slew your father. You know that I never meant to do it, said Bob. Surely, uncle, it was his own fault. How did he come? I see no way. He was not here when I showed you the place, or else we must have seen him. He came round the corner of that rock that stands in front of the furze bush. Now that we had the clue, a little examination showed the track. Behind the furze bush, a natural tunnel of rock, not more than a few yards long, led into a narrow gorge covered with brushwood, and winding into the valley below the farmhouse of the Dulles Crags. Thither we hurried to obtain assistance, and there the whole mystery was explained. Black Hopkin, who stole behind George Boring and stunned, or perhaps slew him with one vile blow, has this and this only to say at the bar, that he did it through love of his daughter. Gwendolyn, the last of seven, lay dying on the day when my friend and myself came up the valley from the Adir. Her father, a man of enormous power of will and passion as well as muscle, rushed forth of the house like a madman, when the doctor from Dogelly told him that nothing more remained except to await the good time of heaven. It was the same deadly decline which had slain every one of his children at that same age, and now must extinguish a long-descended and slowly impoverished family. "'If I had but a gold watch I could save her,' he cried in his agony as he left the house. "'Ever since the old gold watch was sold they have died, and they have died. They are all gone, one after another, the last of all my children.' In these lonely valleys looks a strange old superstition that even death must listen to the voice of time in gold, that when the scanty-numbered moments of the sick are fleeing, a gold watch laid in the wasted palm and pointing the earthly hours compels the scythe of death to pause. The timeless power to bow before the two great gods of the human race, time and gold. Poor George in the valley must have shown his watch. The despairing father must have been struck with crafty madness at the sight. The watch was placed in his daughter's palm, but death had no regard for it. Thenceforth Black Hopkin was a blasted man, racked with remorse and heart disease, sometimes raving, always roving, but finding no place of repentance. And it must have been a happy stroke, if he had made his peace above, which none of us can deal with. 
when the throb of his long-worn heart stood still at the vision of his victim, and his soul took flight to realms that have no gold and no chronometer. End Chapter 8 End of George Boring, A Tale of Cataridris by Richard Doddridge Blackmore